0: You're listening to the February 4th edition of The Close Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks, managing editor of FilmLink.com. And this
1: is Eugene Hernandez, deputy director of The Film Society. On this edition of The Close Up, we're featuring a discussion with screen legend and filmmaker Liv Ullman. Oscar nominated actress Liv Ullman took part in our ongoing free talk series, sponsored by HBO, here at the Film Society back in December. Her latest directorial effort is Miss Julie, which stars Jessica Chastain, Colin Farrell, and Samantha Morton. Adapted from August Strindberg's play of the same name, Miss Julie takes place on a country estate in the 1880s in Ireland. In an atmosphere of wild revelry and loosened social constraints, Miss Julie and John, her father's valet, charm and manipulate each other over the course of one night.
0: I moderated the conversation with Liv Ullman, and during our discussion she talked about the making of Miss Julie and revealed some great anecdotes about the making of the film in Ireland. Additionally, Ullman discussed her early career as a stage actress and her life with Swedish director Ingmar Bergman. She also recalled a feisty exchange Bergman had with the late actress Ingrid Bergman on the set of one of their movies. For more about Ullman's own tumultuous life with the late Ingmar Bergman, Check out the 2012 doc Live in Igmar.
1: The Film Society of Lincoln Center's ongoing series of free talks takes place year-round here at Lincoln Center. Check FilmLink.com for information on upcoming free events. But for now, let's go to the conversation with Liv Ullman.
0: Welcome back to the Film Society, Ms. Ullman.
2: Thank you very much. When was I here last?
0: Uh, well, <laughs> you were here for the New York Film Festival. Um, oh. For, um, they had a screening of, of Liv and in Ingmar.
2: Exactly. Yes,
0: yes. So Welcome back. And you, you have a bunch of fans here who gave you a very rapturous applause. That was really nice, everybody. <laughs> so, Ms. Julie, um, how, what was the beginnings of this? Um, you, this, is obvious, this is a play by August Strindberg. Um, when did you well? When did you first become familiar with that play? Um, and we'll kind of, and we'll go from there. Well,
2: obviously, I'm an actress, and I mm-hmm. have been for like um, 52 years or something. So, being Scandinavian, although I'm Norwegian, not Swedish, Strindberg has always been very familiar to me. But I've never wished. Uh, Really, to play Miss Julie, mm-hmm. or I've never done any of Strindberg's plays, but I, I did uh, do a Streetcar Named Desire here with Kate Blanchett and Tennessee Williams was tremendously influenced by Strindberg. And as it turns out, a lot of big writers they were very influenced by uh, Strindberg. O'Shea O'Neill, when he won his Nobel Prize, he he thanked. Uh, August Strindberg, for all the inspiration, and Bernard Shaw, he translated many of his things into English, paid for it, and so. So, uh, I understand why writers really feel inspired by him. And when I did Streetcar Named Desire, and I recognized so much of Miss Julie in that, that uh, I read it again, and Mm -hmm. suddenly I thought, oh, I would love to do this as a film, but uh, nobody asked me because they don't usually ask somebody my age to do another movie. And then somebody did ask me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they were first-time producers. And they asked if I would uh, direct the movie and write the script myself. And uh, I said, so what about uh, Miss Julie, August Strindberg? And they said, yes. And they didn't know what they said yes to but <laughs> <laughs> but it became miss julie and and i am so happy uh, for for doing that because it's so full of everything i want to talk about both as an actress as a writer and very much now as a director how we are existing at the same time in this world and how little we do connect. And you have this incredible writer, E.M. Forster, who says, you know, the most important thing in life is to connect. And uh, I found in Miss Julie three people. They do not connect. They have every chance, but so much in their class difference. Mm-hmm. And it happens in 1890, and so much between the two lovers who are not really lovers between man and woman, uh, you don't listen, you don't see, and you want to be seen, and you want to be listened to. And I thought, uh, uh, I want to write the script. And so Strindberg, I, this was a long answer. I'm not going to yeah, do no, that no. <laughs> But, I'd rather hear
0: you than me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but Strindberg, uh, he didn't like women at all. And he, <laughs> and he really didn't kind of hide that because in the foreword of Miss Julie, he wrote a lot of things that he felt about women. And there's not a the woman here who would like it and hopefully not too many men either. And so I thought, you know, since this is an adaptation, I'm free. And so... I allowed Miss Julie to say things that maybe Strindberg let her think, but he didn't put it in words. Mm-hmm. And I even let uh, John, the the servant in the movie, mm-hmm. say things that maybe Strindberg just mm-hmm. let him him think. And that's where the adoption comes in. Yeah, and for those
0: who maybe are not as familiar with the story, but you could probably ascertain from the from the trailer that the, the, the crooks of the of the of the of the story is um, the daughter of a baron in living in a castle in Ireland in around 1880s, um, sort of seduces, kind of gets friendly with uh, um, her father, the baron's uh, valet, or valet valet. Um, well, I would mm.
2: say, am I allowed to yeah, yeah. disagree with you? Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Liv Ullman disagreed with me.
2: (laughs) Because now I'm going to disagree, because Mm -hmm. she does not seduce him. Mm -hmm. Because I believe when Miss Julie comes in, she is a woman who is so disconnected, really, from the world Mm -hmm. already, Mm -hmm. that I feel what she's connected to mostly is a wish to maybe disappear, maybe to be part of nothing. Mm -hmm. And in nothing, she would feel some kind of serenity. But uh, things happen, and who asks and wants the other one is never really clear, but it's really what happens between man and woman, or woman and woman, and man and man. It's really once you start to connect in a certain way, uh, Mm. something happens, and sometimes when you have no words, you also get into... Love making, mm-hmm. which the two of them do.
0: Right, and I want to go back a little bit. When you were you were talking about Strindberg didn't really like women, but of course you adapted. But he
2: loved. He married many of them, but right. you know, it I'm was, sure <laughs> 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 it, <laughs> it was against yeah. his wish because yeah. he he really looked down uh, at their character somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you read that, uh, it's terrible what he writes about us. So I don't think he minds that I allowed her to be nicer than than he he wanted her to be. Well,
0: that's what I was going to ask. Was how how did you put sort of Liv Ullman's touch on 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 his story?
2: Because I'm I am a a, a woman, and uh, when she, I mean, he gives her some of his. Dreams, And you know when you give dreams to someone, you mustn't thread badly at those dreams. Yeats wrote about that. Mm-hmm. Be careful to step on other people's dreams. And she does that. She comes down to the kitchen where he, in a way, is the master. And she starts ordering him around, telling him, get me beer, sit down, get up, kiss my shoes, and things mm. like that. Uh, she starts ordering him around, but at the same time uh, there is someone inside of her that he forget to write about, Strindberg, mm. at that time, that really wants to be seen, who isn't sitting there ordering and just feeling this. There's also someone saying, I am scared, I want to belong, do you see me? and in those minutes the camera can go close and you can see a face that is begging asking alone you can hear words that is saying i have to tell you something do you ever feel this that you are no one strindberg didn't write it but i'm sure that's what she was thinking Mm -hmm. because she didn't come down to order him around she came down to the kitchen to be Accepted.
0: Right. And the, um So these characters in your film, this film version of Miss Julie, come alive through uh, Jessica Chastain, Colin Farrell, and Samantha Morton. And I want to cue my colleagues upstairs to uh, the first clip because I do want to talk about um, their performances and your working with them. But uh, why don't we take a look at the first clip, and I have a little cheat sheet here. Um, it's called, We Are Leaving to You Will Ask God to Forgive You. Uh, Jessica Chastain, Colin Farrell, and Samantha Morton, how did your paths cross and um, to bring them on board for Miss Julie?
2: Well, I needed really, really great uh, actors, and uh, they were my first choice, and I'm very, very happy for that. I, I, I think, for example, Jessica Chastain, who, who plays the lady of the house, I mean, she gives an Oscar-worthy performance, and actually so do the two other people uh, as well. They are theater actors, and they are also screen actors. And uh, we had 26 days to do the movie. And when they came, they knew the whole play. They knew all their lines. We had a few days of rehearsals, where mm-hmm. we sat around the table and talked about the play. And I came with you know, some of the thoughts I had while I wrote the screenplay and and then we started and the wonderful thing with great actors is that once you start and you are in a film uh, and this is a film it's not uh, what do you call this other thing the digital digital it's mm-hmm. not digital it's mm-hmm. still one of the few mm-hmm. movies coming out that is a film and it's beautifully beautifully photographed uh Once we started, the part belongs to the actors. We knew what it was about, Mm -hmm. where we were going with the story. But once I say camera, they start, they create. And they really created wonderful. And things that I didn't know, that I didn't see in rehearsals and that we hadn't talked about, that just happened in Mm -hmm. their face, in their in their movement, I was so touched by what they gave, and how wonderful it is to be an actor, and I never felt this myself when I was an actor, I I loved it, mm-hmm. but I never really knew that I was creative, and I, I was, because I was a good actor too, but I didn't really see it the way that I saw it with with these people, it was fantastic, uh, like, uh, John, the first time when, when he comes down in the kitchen and he's ordered around by, by her, the way he plays the servant, who in his own place, you know, mm-hmm. has to do a lot of things that he never dreamt would, would happen to him, that he does it and he does it like, uh, you know, when a man gets offended, sometimes he doesn't necessarily get violent He doesn't necessarily get, uh, you know, macho. He can become like a five-year-old because he loses his self-confidence and, you know, normally you would feel uh, warmth for him. Mm -hmm. And he does that so beautifully. She tells all these orders to him and he is stiff and he's five-year-old and he's trying to find his dignity. It's so incredibly done by... uh, Colin Mm -hmm. Farrell, and she, who is sitting there ordering, you can see, which I said earlier, you can see behind this, sitting here and ordering and getting completely out of line, there is someone saying, please talk to me, please see me, please see who I I really am. And for a director, you just marvel, because I didn't tell them to do that. They did it, that's where great actors are uh,
0: creators. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. I was um, reading up on some articles about the film uh, during the Toronto Film Festival, um, where the film debuted, and it was interesting because there were some observations among the press that Jessica Chastain's character mirrored, or at least had some of the aura of of some of the characters that you have played um, as an actor um, through your decades as on, on the big screen. I was kind of curious... If you agreed with that or somewhat agreed with that or what your thoughts were on that?
2: Well, you know, I can see now, which I didn't see before, Mm -hmm. that we can look alike. Maybe not in that movie, but I saw, you know, photos that were lying on the set when, you know, they took pictures of her in makeup to remember. And so, yeah, well, that could have been me when I was very young. But no, we are not the same kind of actors uh, because... uh, Although, I played a lot of really neurotic, sad people (laughs) and maybe that's the movies you most have seen. Although, I'm not that, I'm a really happy, wonderful (laughs) person, but I I, I did that and I would often go for sympathy you know, Mm -hmm. see my situation and see my suffering and and see all of this. She doesn't do that. Jessica doesn't do that. And there is a scene in the movie where they really have started to uh, really kill each other. And they are going to escape. And she comes in with her little bird, which is the only thing that is her uh, ownership. The only living creature that cares for her. And he kills the bird. Suddenly, tremendously, in a horrifying way. And I know, since Almost you Almost like asked, in a panic. Yeah, yeah. although the bird mm-hmm. is ne- it's not... It's a to- uh, toy. There's no... <laughs> it's a prop. <laughs> no no birds, birds were killed in the making of Miss, no <laughs> Miss birds, Julia. No nothing, <laughs> nothing is killed. Except for but, maybe craft services. No, <laughs> okay. You're right. right. But I know what I would have got because it's an incredible scene. Mm-hmm. And I would have got, I mean, I would have cried and I would have wept. And it would have been, you would all have wept with me. I, mm-hmm. I, I would have done that. <laughs> Jessica, he comes and we are on her face and she's holding the bird. And I saw this only once with an audience. Mm-hmm. And she's holding the bird, and at that time, it's alive. And in that same, he comes in, and he takes the bird away from her. And we are on her face. And then, and then he has a big knife. And we follow his knife. And the bird is there, dead. Jessica comes down in that picture, the horror The sobbing is the worst sobbing I've ever heard because it comes from somewhere deep down. It's not me weeping. It's not something that you would care for. It's sobbing from, this is me as a human being and my life is over. This is when I die. I'm dying now. That is how she did it. And then it went over to enormous rage and she almost is killing him with his Mm -hmm. uh, knife. Right. I would never have done it like that. But when I saw this, first of all, when I saw her do it, I, I cried so much after, I couldn't believe what she did. But when we saw it with an audience, no, the audience were not weeping. When the audience saw her face come down, and together with the bird, they screamed. The whole audience in Toronto, mm-hmm. a very big, loud scream. And I believe that we as human beings in this terrible world we're living in now with so much violence and so much things that is happening in our world, I believe that we are keeping in so many screams, so much that we are afraid of, so many things we don't dare to say to anyone. And that scream suddenly in a dark room with a lot of strangers around, people are allowed to scream, a scream they are feeling about being alive in this world. And that's the kind of scream her face and her sobbing made. I admire her for that. Mm. And that's why I think movies are more important than ever because we live in this world. More important than ever because they do combine everything. Literature, dance, music writing, everything, and we can still go there and get some answers to the world we are living in, and maybe walk out of the cinema and have some new thoughts or make some parallels to the life we are living now. And that's why it's so sad if the movies more and more goes into, Mm -hmm. you know, this uh, box office, uh, whatever they are called.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to cue my colleagues again for the next clip, but just a question, and actually consistent with the scream, um, as I was watching Miss Julie, I, I was fortunate enough to see it um, before today. Um, what, one of the aspects that really struck me was obviously the very the class division. Um, the class division that existed in the 1880s is perhaps different in the sense of what happens today
2: i'm going to disagree uh, yeah, well well, yeah. well, well, well
0: <laughs> I w- let me, let me finish. I was going to say different in the sense that. You know, in this situation, there is a baron, and there's a landed gentry, and there's a title, and, a, and, a, and an official nobility. But the, obviously, the class difference is there. You can still see the parallels um, in the story to today, even though it is set in the 1880s. I think it's very much a, it could be very much a contemporary story. And I was wondering if you had that sort of going through your mind. Um, was that what you were going to disagree with me about? No. <laughs>
2: what kind of class difference is there in the world today? At this time, yes, the servants, they lived under the ground. When they looked out of the window, they saw a white chalked wall because they are under the ground. There are bedrooms under the ground. There is a long tunnel from the kitchen and out to the main road so that the people up there will not be disturbed, that servants and people like that are walking on the grass that belongs to them. Now, what do we have today? What are we not really wanting to see that is happening in the world? So much misery and so few people that have a wonderful time, are they really seeing what is happening? And and I used Ebola today. I thought of that today. When people in West Africa is dying from Ebola because of their situation, from where they're coming, what do we do? We say, please do not bring them to our country. It's very nice that some people will go there and heal them. If that is their choice, go and Mm. heal them. But please don't come back and disturb us. We are also sitting in a good... Place in the house where we can see the sun and the grass and we are not disturbed by people coming over the grass. We are doing the same and maybe in a wor- much worse way because we know about it. We see it, we see it on TV, we see it everywhere and we still feel right in saying, please do not disturb my fa- safe life with this, what is happening. I feel it is worse today. Class looks different today, uh, but it is worse today because we should know better and we, and we don't, including myself. We really don't.
0: Okay, so the next clip, um, it's with Colin Farrell and Jessica Chastain. It's called A Kiss in the Catacombs.
2: I, I would like you to know, actually, that the editor of this movie, Mikhail Lestovlovsky, is here and he's sitting there.
0: Talk about the location. Um, this is at a castle in Ireland, if I'm correct. And talk about the aesthetic that um, you, and all the filmmaking team, went for um, in this portrayal of Miss Julie.
2: We looked for, you know, castles everywhere, and according to Strindberg, of course, this happened in Sweden, but I couldn't make it Swedish, because why would they speak English? And obviously, the producers wanted an English-speaking movie, which I I do understand. And so it was between England and and Ireland, and I feel that in many ways, Ireland is closer to uh, Scandinavia also they celebrate Midsummer Night because all of this happens uh, Midsummer Night Mm -hmm. Uh, and and we looked at many castles and suddenly we found this incredible castle that had everything we needed it had this enormous kitchen the wonderful set designer she made these two rooms where where The maid has one room, the housekeeper has one room, and the servant has the other room, and uh, the windows that look out at the, the white wall because they are underground, and then this incredible tunnel that goes from the kitchen and far, 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 far out to the main road so that the invisibles should continue to be invisible. And it had these incredible stairs up to the main uh, rooms that belonged to the rich, wonderful people. And it had these uh, small, small servants' stairs that goes down mm-hmm. to the servants. And it had everything. So actually it became uh, the fourth character and in and you see in the beginning because I also made let us see Miss Julie as a child, a child of ten year old, and you see her in these enormous stairs where she's all alone. There's no grown up, there's no one there, and and you see her go through Uh, the stairs and go into a room where there has been a party and the glasses are lying there. It must have been a wild party and she's all alone and she comes into another big room with all the beauty and so. And she's so unhappy and so alone and suddenly there's an open window and she runs out, out to the garden far, far away where there's a beautiful brook that belongs to her, and there she sits, and she sends flowers down the brook, and suddenly she feels at peace, she feels serenity, she says to the flowers, uh, you're all small, but you're all piece of the whole, and, uh, and she's happy. And in the end, that's where she uh, goes to end her life, to but uh, that place—it was uh, magical, magical—and I really had to redo the script because when I wrote it first, you know, I—I—I I, I, I used the windows because I thought out of a window you see midsummer, you see the sun, you see the flowers, you see the trees. It was so beautiful in my way—the birds, everything—and mm. then we found this castle, and I knew they see nothing from that kitchen. They just see the white walls. And uh, I redid the script and uh, obviously much more right to the, uh, to the movie itself and to Strindberg. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I, I feel like there's a consistency in some of the films that you have directed, um, this sort of conflict between sort of, well, love coming up against a social order, um, societal pressure um and, and that was that's true i think in sophie and faithless and kristen Lovren's daughter Lavron's daughter okay um thank you <laughs> um so is that well am i correct and yeah. and and why why are you attracted to that if so
2: well maybe i'm i'm that's what i'm most interested in i uh I, I spent so many years, you know, besides uh, working as an actress, director, and so with uh, an organization called the International Rescue Committee, and and also now we made the own division of that called Women for Refugees. I'm saying it wrong now because we changed our name, but it's. Uh, International Rescue Committee is one of the greatest, maybe the biggest refugee organization in the world. And we, the new organization, which is now actually 25 years, we work only for women and children because in whatever uproar there is in the world, uh, they are the people, 85% of the people, who have to give in to the trauma. And I think... From what I learned from from those people, uh, I see there is such a division in the life that I was given without doing anything, and the life they have without doing anything as well. So I think somehow it uh, it comes into what i work because there's no other way i can excuse that i'm not out in the field and doing something but at least i'm i'm trying to to somehow put class mm-hmm. but the unfair class i think it's good that people can earn money and be rich i i, I really think that is good mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone in the world should be rich on behalf of somebody else being kept mm. poor. And uh, just a little episode. I, I was in India and it was raining and there was sitting on the other side of the road, there was sitting a woman and you know her belongings were around her and her children and everything and nothing else she had. And it was raining and she took her shawl and put it over her and the children. And I was with some other, and I stopped and I was looking at her. And then she's doing like this and I went over and I was asked to sit down and her shawl is over my head as well. And we are just sitting there. We have no common language, we have nothing. But there is a shawl mm-hmm. over my head that tells me that, you know, there should never be a tunnel between us and, and other people so that we will not uh, uh, see them. And I think that's, it sneaks into the mm-hmm. the movies.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to... Uh cue my colleagues again for the third clip and I do definitely want to get to your questions so we'll do that so um, get them ready um, but just uh, to lead us into this I mean more of a general question Ms. Ullman um, how, did, how has your long acting career sort of informed you as a director?
2: By working with many bad directors <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And they tell me what I'm thinking and why I'm thinking it. And, oh, I had one. And he said, and so you come in of the door and there's the man you love and your heart is going like this, dum, 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 (laughs) dum, dum. And then you come in and you count to three. And then you say very quickly, I love you. And so, and you know, I'm very perceptive. When people say things, I think I have to do it. So I come in of the door and... I know it's going boom, 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 boom. And then I say very quickly, I can never do that right. So I know you do not explain emotions as a director to an actor. You don't do that in real life to people either. If you want somebody to love you, don't tell him or her how to love you. Just be in a way that could be uh, lovable. And from the good directors, I've learned trust. I've learned... uh, believe in the actor's creativity. And I think that goes with life too. And that's my difficulty, you know. I I think other people are controlling me and I tell them not to do it. And in that way, I'm so controlling too. It's very, very difficult to to live a splendid life. But we can always try and I learned that Mm -hmm. from good and bad directors. And it really goes over into life.
0: Okay, for clip number three, it's uh, Jessica Chastain and Colin Farrell, A Toast Kiss My Shoe. (laughs) Um, One question and then I want to turn it over to you guys. But um, Ingmar Bergman um, staged Miss Julie, um, like in the early '90s, and I think it actually had it, it played at BAM over in Brooklyn. Um, he had also done Ibsen's *A Doll a Dollhouse and his own adaptation from *Scenes of a Marriage*. And I read that he saw the three women, this three women protagonists, as being related. I was wondering what your thoughts on that.
2: Well, they are related in certain ways, mostly. By not being related because uh, this one doesn't know what choice is and she's completely unable to make a choice because she's so inadequate in facing life and uh, Nora in the doll's house uh, mm-hmm. she dances around a lot and does what may please other people I recognize that a lot from myself And only in the end does she face reality that she is dancing, that she is a people pleaser. And she makes a decision within one night, I'm leaving my house, I'm going to find myself. But we don't know if she's coming back again, actually. Ibsen never wrote that. Uh, But she does leave. Whereas scenes from a marriage, the woman there, she grows. And she doesn't go back. She grows and she becomes independent. And uh, she doesn't lose her capacity of love, even the man she felt that kept her from, from loving. So yes, they are, they are the same, although they are very, very mm. different. And actually, scenes from a marriage, which was the film Ingmar Bergman made. Mm-hmm. That's the only film I made with him where I was not neurotic at all. <laughs> <laughs> not neurotic at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll
0: let someone ask the follow-up question to that. One. All right. So questions. Um, okay. I, I will, okay. I'm gonna go back and then I will come to you. Okay. Hi. Um, just.
2: I was curious if you still have an interest in being an actress yourself, working as an actress yourself, and also if you have a comment on uh, Schuberg's film of uh, Miss Julie. Uh, yeah, I'd love to be an actress, but they make so few movies for for my age. But you know, if there is a good part, it can be small, I'd love a big one, but it could be small, <laughs> and and I would do it. But I'm very happy with my life, you know, directing and and writing, and I like that you asked about Schubert because, uh, as I said, film is still the media where you have everything, you know, art and writing and also music, and and the Schubert, uh, the the one which goes, which is Miss Julie's. Uh, Uh, piece uh, which is the same all the time when when we hear it but it changes because of the environment which is under and in the end it follows her into into death and that is incredible how the circumstances of your life is also colouring the music you are hearing and in all the films I made I have Schubert is my my I was asking about the film the film of Miss Julie that Alf Sch- I was asking about the film of Miss Julie that Alf Schubert did, maybe I'm not pronouncing it well um the nineteen fifty one film with Anita Bjork. I was wondering if you had a comment on that Oh, I thought you were into the music. I was so <laughs> moved by it <laughs> <me. laughs> but no Schubert made uh, Schubert. Schubert. well. Oh yes, I, that, I didn't like it, to be huh? <laughs> No, I didn't like it at all. I, I, actually, I didn't feel it was true to August Strindberg either, and he had made up so many things. To talk about my adaption, that's nothing. He did a lot of strange adaptions <laughs> that I think it didn't even belong. Uh, I'm sorry if you like it, but I didn't. <laughs> but, you know, it was seen as a good movie. It won first prize in Cannes, so. but um, no, I didn't like it.
0: And just to follow up from your question about acting again, I I have heard that there have been at least one or two Hollywood uh, directors that had, had you in mind for some roles, and I was wondering if you would circle back and return to Hollywood again in the future as, an, as a as an actor?
2: Sure, you know, if it was a good part. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I do have an offer to do a smaller part with a very famous uh, director, and if that movie happens, I will be very happy. It's even a comedy. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, right here. We're in the second row. First, Ms. Ullman, thank you for coming and sharing with us. It's a very special moment, I think, for most of us sitting here who have seen all of your work. I have seen Miss, your Miss Julie, and I must tell you, I was stunned by the, um, the trap that they all were in, each one of them. And I wondered the two women, very different. But there seemed to be no option for either one of them, except what they do. Blanche has her fantasy life. There seems to be no imagination, no fantasy, no survival techniques for the people trapped in a no exit kind of situation. So could you talk about the two women and how they deal with each other in your film?
2: Yes, that's an interesting thing, and you know, I I, I directed uh, Streetcar Named Desire with Kate Blanchett, who is this incredible actress, and I felt, yes, there is a fantasy place for her too, and the way I allowed it to be is, uh, in the end, they all think she is mad, And I do not think she is mad. It's only that she cannot keep reality. Life is no more real because nobody really sees her and wants her and cares for her. And so they send for a doctor and the doctor comes to the sister's home and they take her out and nobody says goodbye or anything. They take her out and they take her out to the stage and suddenly, The doctor lets go of her, and the nurse, and everybody in the house, they freeze and they are quiet. And the nurse, the sister, everybody, they freeze and quiet. And then we follow Blanche to the other side of the stage. And there she is standing, and the light is coming. And suddenly, she is in this world that she has created where nobody is asking me anything, nothing is expected from me, but right here and right now, I'm happy and I will never come out again. I will just be in this world where nobody is going to reach me anyway. I felt that was her escape. And in the movie, uh, the escape or the way that the... Housekeeper, the servant, the chef, she has her Bible and she has to believe in her class. It's maybe not the most distinguished class, but it's the class she is proud of, and she has the Bible. And she does something that no one really in that movie does. She shows, uh, uh, she shows uh, compassion. She shows compassion towards that woman who has really destroyed her life too. Because in the middle of having her life destroyed, she takes her handkerchief and she does this and takes away the blood from her face. And she quotes the Bible and say, I want you to know this. And this is the answer, the answer for her. And maybe in the end, it seemed to be some kind of answer for Miss Julie too the Bible. And Miss Julie, she does something like Blanche does. She goes out of the house with a knife she has in her hand, and she goes to the brook where she was, when she was a little girl and she was happy, and she sends out the flowers with the brook, and she says, you all belong together. You are small, but you belong together. Mm -hmm. And we see the brook, and we see the flowers, And suddenly, we come back to Miss Julie, and she's lying there, and she has taken her life. But for a split second, she was happy too. And I'm not condoning that you take your life. But for her, at that moment, it gave her some kind of serenity. So I feel that each of them chooses something and maybe only the housekeeper chooses something that allows her to continue living as a real person. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: question over on this side.
2: Uh, thanks for the presentation. Uh, you have worked with Ingvar Bergman for decades like, and you have been in a number of films with him. Uh, how much his directing style uh, affected your uh, vision into directing films? Well, you know, the trust, the trust in the people I work with, to pick all the best people, because I know they will fill in everything that I do not know from the field of work where where they come from, Uh, to listen and to inspire Uh, good things. But but we are different also as... uh, as people. He once wrote a script which he could have directed himself and he gave it to me. It was called Private Confessions and he said, I want you to do this. I said, but why are you not doing it? And he came with a very lame answer. He said, well, I don't believe in God or anything so I can make this movie. (laughs) I mean, he had written it. (laughs) And I did it and he was very happy with it. (laughs) And so, uh, but I think he needed a, a woman's hand in it.
0: Are there any of his, any others of his writings that you've considered to direct?
2: No, I, I directed another one that he wrote mm-hmm. and he gave to me also. And that was about... Uh, what he saw as the greatest sin he had done in his life, and that had been to be unfaithful to someone. I happen to know that story it happened long before me, and I don't think that was the greatest sin he ever did, but that's what he <laughs> 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 that, uh, that was his uh, version of it. And <laughs> And he gave that to me and wanted me to direct it because he felt he couldn't uh, do it and it was written as a monologue and I said, well, I, I need to do it, you know, that you see the scenes and he wasn't against that as long as I kept his text, but it could be scenes. And then I said, but we need some forgiveness. I mean, this can continue to be the greatest sin of your life. (laughs) Can't you forgive yourself? Because in the movie, there is an old man. Mm -hmm. His name was Bergman, so obviously that was Bergman. (laughs) And then there was a younger man who was Bergman Mm -hmm. as the young Bergman. And I said, so can't they, can't he forgive himself? No, Bergman, that's not me. So why did you call him Bergman? I couldn't think of another name, I I mean. But no, he would not do that, not to Mm -hmm. be forgiven. And then I did this because I was not allowed to change the words, that's how he was. I can understand that actually. Then I had, there was a long monologue from the younger Bergman because it goes back and forth in time. The younger Bergman, he sits in front of a mirror, in Ingmar's version, and says this was terrible and how could I be like this to this woman and uh, it has ruined my life in a certain degree, etc., etc." he says. <coughs> so what I did, I didn't let that young Bergman sit there in front of the mirror. I let him come into the working room of the old Bergman. And the old Bergman is sitting listening to the young Bergman. And what does the old Bergman do when he's finished with his guilt-ridden monologue? He reaches out and he uh, pats him on the chin and smiles. And without words, forgive. And actually, he didn't forgive me for that. It took a, <laughs> year. <laughs> it took a year, but then then he, <laughs> that was okay. Then,
0: you heard it here, folks. <laughs> All right, uh, maybe time for one or two more questions. Go out in the front here. Uh, you, wait for the microphone. Oh, you can grab that one, too. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: Hi. Um, when casting Miss Julie, what, um, what was it about Jessica Chastain that called your attention? Had you seen any
2: of her work prior? Yes, I, before I asked her, I asked her on the phone. And actually, her agent also called me. That's how I had the phone number. I saw all the movies she had made, and I thought in every movie she was different, and she found another core of that person. So I knew this is a really, really gifted actress and then I went to Los Angeles and we had a meeting not for her to not for her to uh, audition, of course not, you don't audition actors, but, but for us to talk to see that we would have a, a, a way of being together and I, I really fell in love and she was very sincere and very like this and during the whole shooting she was like this and when I actually met her in Toronto after the shooting, I saw Jessica Chastain for the first time. She was young and happy and laughing and so and I couldn't believe it. This is the heavy, sincere, almost like neurotic leave in the old days, you know, uh, all the time because she kept very much into her her, her part during the whole shooting she, she really did. But uh, uh, I knew the moment I met her that uh, I was lucky if she really after meeting me also wanted to work with me and, uh, and she did and I did and it was an incredible, I learned a lot from her. She taught me a lot. She's a wonderful, wonderful uh, actress.
1: Uh, would you work with her again?
2: Oh absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. The only thing she said which I didn't like, but uh, I had to (laughs) exist, you know, because I usually stand by the camera, camera here and I stand there. She did say that that made her nervous because then she felt like, you know, oh, Lee Wilmers is watching me and not the director. And, you know, could I please go and look in a monitor? And (laughs) I did sometimes when I felt I was really doing that to her, but mostly I wanted to stand there. But whatever makes an actor nervous, you you, sh- you shouldn't be doing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, and I'm actually going to ask my colleagues to cue the final uh, clip, um, which we'll do that as sort of the end. Okay, please.
1: Okay. Hi. Um, one of my favorite films of yours is Autumn Sonata. And I just wanted to ask, how was it like working with Ingrid Bergman?
2: Oh, I, I loved working with Ingrid. Ingrid Bergman, I I used to sit on the floor and watch her, not because, yeah, I I, I really admired her as an actress, but the way she was at a woman, as a woman, the way she answered Ingmar, you know, she's the only one that, you know, questioned him and (laughs) did things like that. I don't have time for a story, do I? Yeah, go ahead. Have you all heard it? We have all
0: the time in the world for you. (laughs) Go for it.
2: You maybe have heard it before, but it's my favorite story about uh, Ingrid Bergman, because already from the reading, you know, uh, she would say, but she can't say this, Ingmar, can't can't she say it very differently? And he got so upset, really got (laughs) upset. And when the reading was over, he was uh, so upset he thought he wanted to cancel the movie, but he he didn't. (laughs) But they never really became the best of friends. And in his book, he writes about the two. And the big thing was in Autumn Sonata, when I, the daughter, you know, I say to my mother, because she's a pianist and she travels the world to be a pianist, Ingmar wrote this, who traveled the world himself, but it was a woman, so that wasn't so good. So I tell the mother how you have ruined my life, I'm 40 years old, and look at me, I'm terrible, my life, and it's all your fault. I have three pages of monologue, and the mother is just to stand there and listen and listen and listen. And when I read that in the script, I thought, oh, if I get to do it, I will be so moving, because the mother's answer was, please hold around me, please love me. And I thought, oh, I would say that beautifully. Now we do it with Ingrid Bergman. So three pages of monologue. I tell her what a horrible, horrible mother she's been. You've ruined my life. Look at me, 40 years old. I'm nothing because of you. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So finish with that. And I thought I was marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> Here is an Oscar. And then, <laughs> and then we turn the camera, and it is on uh, her. And she said, I'm not going to say that. I want to smack her in the face and leave the room. <laughs> and Ingmar went like this, and he screamed, and she screamed, and finally the screaming, they went out in the corridor. <laughs> and we, we heard the screaming. We knew now the movie's over. Now it's really <laughs> over. And then it became quiet, and in they come, the genius and Ingrid. <laughs> and turn the camera... She says her lines, please hold around me, please love me, but on her face is the face of every woman in this world who have said, I am sorry, yes, I will do this, and the anger, I have to say this again, the anger being forced to say, I am sorry that I did another thing because I'm a woman, specifically to the child, and she was fantastic. And she, of course, was nominated for an Oscar. I was not. (laughs) But but I admired her, because she told the truth when truth was needed. And I'm Nora in the Doll's House. I still dance around.
0: So, Miss Julie opens Friday. Um, Please go see it. Tell your friends. And uh, thanks again to Liv Ullman. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Thank you.
1: The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Uh, Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com. F I L M L I N C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.